Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability. Today, I'm grateful to have Dr. Wong here as my guest. Dr. Wong is a professor of law at City University, Hong Kong, and he is joining us here as a visiting scholar, visiting researcher. Professor Wong has been at Emory University before in 2008 as a Fulbright Scholar. Thank you for being here, Professor Wong. It's my great pleasure. Can you tell me a little bit about your first trip to Emory in 2008? Oh, it's a long time ago. And I was at the Emory Law School in the year of 2008 and nine, And I did my dissertation research here, uh, focusing on the U.S. constitutional law. And my host professor is Professor Michael Puri. And yeah, it's... It's a wonderful experience for me because, you know, uh, it's my first time to speak English in an English-speaking environment. And also Emory Law School uh, is very special for me, has a very special place in my heart because uh, it is a place where I started my academic journey in a common law setting. Well, we are so glad to have you back as a visitor. It's been a while, 13, 14 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How time flies. Yes. Can you tell me about the research you did while you were here? You said you started your journey in studying common law. Yeah. My dissertation research, as I said, uh, focuses on the U.S. constitutional law, the specific topic that I discuss in my dissertation is the relationship between the legislature and the judiciary uh, from a U.S. and a comparative perspective. And, you know, it's very interesting. At that time, you know, uh, many scholars and students in mainland China were eager to learn more about the U.S. constitutional law, uh, even sometimes with a hope to, you know, with the hope that China could establish a model uh, of the constitutional review, which is just like the U.S. model. So that's why I decided to research in this area. And then my dissertation was written in Chinese, and uh, I'm very grateful that at that time my dissertation was published by Tsinghua University Press. Wow, congratulations. Thank you, yeah. That's a great experience, you know, because whenever we think about the uh, relationship between the judiciary and the legislature, the United States is always, I think, a very good example for uh, comparative law scholars to, uh, to, to explore relevant issues, right? So the United States was the country, uh, uh, first country, generally speaking, uh, you know, to have a written constitution in the history of constitutional law and also U.S. is the first country to establish a, a judicial review model. Right? So that's why you know, I'm very grateful for my experience at Emory Law School with so many world-class scholars. So as you continued your academic journey, you returned to Hong Kong. And while you were there, well, as you've been there, how has your research and how have your academic interests since developed? Afterwards, I moved to Hong Kong and continued my academic career. Hong Kong is a very special place because Hong Kong remains a common law jurisdiction under the framework of one country, two systems. 
and I teach common law subjects in Hong Kong. Now I'm teaching legal theory and jurisprudence to LLB and JD students. I also teach constitutional law to、uh, students in Hong Kong. But my research focus very interesting. I, you know, the focus、uh, is a little bit different from before. I focus、um, more on the authoritarian regimes because you can see now the changing world order in twenty first century, and in particular, you can see the rise of authoritarianism in many parts of the world. Sometimes even within liberal democracies in some parts of the world. So that's why you can see my publications during my stay in Hong Kong focus more on non-liberal regimes. My research, in、uh, in principle,、uh, tries to investigate what it is, what it really is. I mean, for many issues in an authoritarian setting, and how it is, why it is. That's why you know the research methods. Uh, employed in my research have been changed, have been different from the traditional doctoral research. Sure, I teach law and society course in Hong Kong, you know, which is interdisciplinary, and I employ interdisciplinary research、uh, methods to investigate these issues. Because why, you know, it's very important for people to understand what it really is in an authoritarian setting. Why? Because in an authoritarian setting, I think. Due to the lack of very limited degree of freedom of speech, and I think sometimes people are very vulnerable in the sense that people may have some imaginary, which may be very different from what it is. That is, this is why I think you know the research of this kind is very important to move people away from these imaginations, away from these illusions. Yeah. So that's why my research turns more authoritarian regimes or non-liberal regimes. Anyway, yeah, that's very interesting. Right now, especially after well during the pandemic and COVID nineteen, and now we've got monkeypox. There are a lot of changes happening worldwide. There's a lot happening in Iran right now. How is all of that figuring into your current research? I know you have had several recent publications. One was with Emory University, the International Law Review. What are you focusing on now? How has your research shifted in light of all of these global changes?、Uh, for the pandemic, I think uh, uh, people from many parts of the world may realize that there are too many. You know, different ideologies, different、uh, regime types, and、uh, so yeah, I think it's quite helpful、uh, for people to understand. Oh, wow,、well, this kind of ideology may be different from what I imagined before, because you know, pandemic sometimes you know helps people to have a real picture of what it is. And you've read a little bit about vulnerability theory, right? About Martha、mm-hmm. Feynman's vulnerability theory.、Mm-hmm. How did you get into that? At the first, actually, as I mentioned, I teach a common law subject that is legal theory and jurisprudence in Hong Kong, as I said, which is a common law jurisdiction. And Martha Feynman absolutely is a very famous scholar in this area, and her name is. Always included in the classroom discussion for 
they lecture on feminist nigger theories. And then I noticed that in 2008, uh, if you know, I remember correctly, Martha Feynman developed uh, a new theory that is the vulnerability theory, which seems you know, a little bit different from the feminist nigger theory. And uh, when I actually, from my experience, when I teach this course in Hong Kong, sometimes, you know, it's intellectually difficult for uh, scholars and students to engage theoretical discussion, you know, for long liberal regimes, because these legal theories as discussed in the textbook written by common law jurisdiction scholars, you know, generally focus much more on those practice or principles in a liberal setting, right? So that's why, you know, when I uh, had the opportunity to read and think more about the vulnerability theory, it's very attractive to me, actually, because why? Because the vulnerability theory, you know, has been engaging theoretical discussion beyond the ideologies, beyond the regime type, whether it's liberal or illiberal or non-liberal, whatever you call it. Right? So that's why, you know, it attracts me um, uh, regarding my thinking in this area. How does the theory impact the work that you do and how does it impact your view? Oh, it provides a lot of insights for my research. You know, when uh, I focus my research on authoritarian or non-liberal or illiberal regimes, it's, it's still, to some extent, you know, not at the very general level, right? You know, it's very easy for scholars focusing on liberal regimes saying, okay, this is just an issue discussed in a non-liberal setting. It has nothing to do with the liberal, uh, you know, context, right? So, and then, well... The vulnerability theory, why it's very insightful, it, it is quite helpful for me to engage theoretical discussion uh, beyond regime type. For example, uh, this important concept, a responsive state, which absolutely transcends the ideologic, ideological boundaries, right? So, and uh, uh, in a long liberal setting, right? And uh, then I can give you an example. Uh, there is, a, I think, a very popular political saying in China made uh, you know, by Chairman Mao. He said, man can conquer heaven. Man can conquer heaven. And, well, this, you know, this is very popular in mainland China. And... Uh, People may it may make people imagine that yes, human beings are very powerful and not vulnerable, right? But then, and actually, you know, according to the vulnerability analysis, you know, human beings are vulnerable, right? Human beings are vulnerable. This is the very basic nature of human beings, right? But then, you know, if we think about this political saying of this kind at a deep level, according to the vulnerability theory, well, it may be an illusion, right? It may be just imagination, which favored by the, uh, the, those in power, right? So this kind of political saying, if it is popular, it may be easy for 
those in power to shift away the attention of people to the rule of the state, right? Man can conquer heaven, but where is the state, right? So, and and then of course, then you know, if I use the analytical framework uh, in the vulnerability theory, it's quite helpful to engage theoretical discussions at a very deep level. Even you know, for these non-liberal regimes, yeah, and then you can understand, right? So if we still look at this discussion relevant to liberal regimes, I think uh, theoretically it's quite weak, right? Because for these people from a non-liberal setting, they can easily say, "Oh, this is not my business, right? This is just uh, you know." Uh, uh, belongs to yours, right? We are very different, right? We have our own characteristics, right? Yeah. Right. So, what hopes do you have for your students when you're teaching con law or when you're teaching like legal theory? What do you hope that your students will get out of the class at the end? Like, how do you hope to change their thinking or their ability? Generally, I hope uh, my students in, in the class can have. A more critical thinking. I always think critical thinking is very important. Yeah, if you have no critical thinking nowadays, these political languages used by those in power sometimes very demagogic, right? So, if you have no ability to do critical thinking, then you may have many imaginations, which actually may be very different from the reality, right? But actually, we don't know. We have no ability to discern whether it is uh, it is really the case, right? So that's why in my class, I always try to urge my students to do critical thinking in terms of whatever regime it is. Right? So many practical issues or theoretical issues, right? When you first started studying law, were you in mainland China or were you in Hong Kong? I studied my legal study in mainland China. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you came to the U.S. and yeah, then you went to exactly. Hong Kong. So what was, what was that like, studying law in three different places with very different legal cultures? Uh yeah, that's a very uh, good question. You know, for the case of China, I think it's very complicated sometimes because China is often changing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, during different period of time, you know, we can understand, right? So when I studied law in mainland China, uh, you know, many years ago, I think the political atmosphere is very liberal. And we discussed a lot about the uh, common laws and these laws from developed countries in the class. Because at that time, China really wanted to uh, you know, open its door to the West. And also uh, the, the students in the class uh, spent a lot of time to study uh, U.S. law, British law, French law, German law, right, Japanese law, or even some uh, comparative study with some Asian jurisdictions like Hong Kong, Taiwan, right? So mm-hmm. it's comparative study, right? So it's very interesting. It seems that at that time, we did not pay much attention to what the law is in Chinese society. I mean, this is a... Uh, this is a very interesting law and society, uh, you know, topic, right? So, well, then I came to the United States to study law. Of course, yeah, the law 
and study, uh, you know, uh, is very different from uh, the law as practiced in mainland China. It's a common law system, right? So, and that's why I'm very grateful for my experience at Emory Law School, because when I moved to Hong Kong, which is also a common law jurisdiction, and I I was able to, you know, teach and continue my research uh, in a common law setting. What impact do you want your research to have, or what impact would you hope your research would have? I hope I hope my research could be helpful for people to know more about the real world from a London society perspective. In particular, if people think about these um, issues or practice or ideas uh, as you know we see in a non-liberal setting i still think research is powerful and you, you may see this point from you know the fear of those in power they may try to prohibit the publication of the books or articles right so I think this shows that the you know the research is powerful. That's why I hope my research can change the way of thinking from a critical perspective. That's why, as I said, I think critical thinking is very important. Otherwise, you know, we don't know what it really is, and there are so many imaginations. As you can see, this from the discussion, the vulnerability theory. It has a very important concept: the reasoning from body. This is very important, but of course, it's very difficult, right? So that's what we as scholars should do to help people to conduct the reasoning from the body, not the reasoning from the political language given by those in power, not the reasoning from rhetorics, right? So which may be fabricated by politicians, right? Not the reading from some identity, right? That's my hope as a scholar. Can you can you tell me some specifics as far as what you see exists in people's imagination, either in mainland China, in Hong Kong, or in the United States that you feel is perhaps fabricated and doesn't necessarily line up with a sort of empirical reality. Yeah, you know, the contrasting imaginations as maybe fabricated, maybe for whatever reason, right? Anyway, uh, in different systems, I think uh, it's, I have, uh, you know, the real experience in Hong Kong because, you know, under the framework of one country, two systems, people in Hong Kong, yeah, also may have their own imagination, right? Even, of course, it has much more freedom, uh, than other authoritarian regimes, right? And in mainland China, people also have their imaginations. And then it's very interesting. Some people, when they go to Hong Kong, immediately they may fear that, oh, Hong Kong is not this. It's very different from what it is in my mind, in my imagination, right? And also, uh, my own experience also has something of this kind. When I first came to Emory Law School, wow, what the United States is, is different from the United States in my imagination. I still would like to use the concept uh, in the vulnerability theory. 
of Martha Feynman, human beings politically, yes, sometimes are very vulnerable because the public perceptions can be shaped by the state if the state is very dominant in the public discourse, right? And then because the public perceptions are shaped by the state, if this is the case, you can understand, right? Sometimes people are very weak in understanding some issues, right? So I'm very sympathetic about this, sure. We are almost out of time. Uh-huh. So yeah. I want to thank you so much for sitting here and talking with me thank about you. this. Thank you very much. What a privilege. It's been so interesting and really the privilege has been mine. But thank you. Is there anything that you would like to mention before we finish? Or is there is there anything that you would like listeners to remember specifically about our conversation today? As human beings, I think we need to consider more about the vulnerability of human beings. Sometimes we understand, okay, we are very proud of what we are. That's fine, right? That's very encouraging. But we also must confess the vulnerability of human beings. Of course, this is not just a standalone point. When we realize the vulnerability of human beings, we should take action to pressure the government, to pressure the state to be responsive to the vulnerability of human beings. I think this is a general point I would the listeners to remember. Well, thank you again for chatting with me today. Thank you for your time. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Facebook at Vulnerability in the Human Condition Initiative and on Twitter at VHC Initiative. Thanks for tuning in.